Today on the Matt Wall Show, I'll tell you about my uh, challenging week last week, one attack after another, all designed to silence and intimidate me. The good news is that it didn't work and it never will. Also, a huge shock in the media world as Tucker Carlson leaves Fox News and AOC calls for the government to censor right-wing media personalities. We'll talk about all that and much more today on the Matt Wall Show. Facts and logic are precious rarities in this mad, mad world of ours. But do you know what is even more precious than facts and logic? Precious metals. When the economy is in turmoil and the stock market is tanking, there's only one thing you can count on, and that's precious metals. Birch Gold is the only company I trust to help me invest in physical gold and silver. They have everything you need to protect your money in an unstable economic climate. They'll even help you convert your existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in precious metals. When you invest with Birch Gold, you'll be protecting your savings from inflation and economic uncertainty. I buy gold from Birch Gold because I want a financial safety net for my family. You could do the same. Text Walsh to 989898 to get a free info kit on gold and start investing in your financial future today. With an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, Birch Gold is the company that I trust to protect my future and yours. So text Walsh to 989898 today. Well, I should have known that last week would be interesting. It began in an unusual way. On Sunday, I was uh, leaving church with three of my kids in tow. And as I was walking towards the car, I heard someone shout my name from behind me. And I, you know, I get flagged down by fans on the way out of church pretty frequently, as you might expect. The church-going crowd is my core demographic. So I didn't think it was anything you know, out of the ordinary. And uh, the guy ran up, shook my hand, started making friendly small talk. But then his tone changed suddenly, and he told me, but actually, he thinks that my work has a terrible impact on the world. He said that this church, the one, the one we just came out of, is a place of love, not hate. And I'm not welcome there. Now, I responded in no uncertain terms that he can't speak to me that way in front of my children and that he should be ashamed of himself. He turned around and walked hurriedly away, and that was the end of the conversation. Now, I hoped that my kids who were standing there hadn't been paying attention maybe and uh, maybe didn't realize what the guy said to me. I was hoping perhaps it didn't register on them. But when we got to the car, my son started to cry. And he asked me why that uh, mean man said those things. And I explained to him that there are people in this world who don't like it when you speak the truth and when you try to do what's right. Their hearts are shrouded in darkness and they hate the light, just as the Bible says. Now, I tried to act unfazed for the sake of my kids, but the, the truth is that I was extremely angry. I don't care what you say about me or to me but you've crossed the line when you make my boy cry. But it was an important lesson for him to learn and uh, for me to relearn in preparation for the week ahead. So on Monday afternoon, I was informed that YouTube was demonetizing uh, my channel. And this was the first step towards a possible permanent demonetization or banishment from the platform entirely. YouTube keeps its rules intentionally vague. That's the way they play the game. They'll, they'll penalize you for violating their policies, and yet they won't explain exactly what their policies are. So the company gives itself the license to single anybody out for whatever reasons they decide. They accused me of uh, engaging in hateful conduct, which supposedly ran afoul of both their community guidelines and their ads guidelines. They already took the step of deleting a number of my offending episodes, which are gone now from YouTube. Um, which is something that, again, they did on their own. And now they're taking away our ads, which is a penalty of more than $100,000 per month. That's what it adds up to. Now, they provided us with just three examples of my infractions, and these aren't, these aren't all of them. 
they said, but they told us about three. And uh, they wouldn't tell us why they were infractions, but they, they said that, um, you know, they, they told us what three of them were. And they said all three of them had to do with Dylan Mulvaney, coincidentally. And they all seemed to involve the crime of, quote unquote, misgendering. So, for example, one of the violations occurred when I referred to Mulvaney as a, quote, guy. That was a, a violation. And what you should know is that we were not flagged by the algorithm. Okay, it's not one of those algorithmic glitches. And this does not appear to be some low-level decision at the company either. Yet, a path to remonetization is available. It seems that we can get back into YouTube's good graces, uh, get our monetization back by simply respecting preferred pronouns and refraining from offering any meaningful critiques of gender ideology. In other words... All I have to do to get all that back is forfeit my integrity and betray all of my deep, deepest held principles. That's it. Now, not to skip ahead, but I can tell you right now that my answer to that offer is not only no, but hell no. The next day, shortly after uh, I finished eating dinner with my family, I noticed that my Twitter account had been logged out on my computer. And I tried to log back in but the password didn't work, and that's when I knew that I was hacked. So I grabbed my phone to call my team about it, but my phone had stopped working at the precise moment when the Twitter hack happened, and that's when I knew that the hack went far beyond Twitter. As we would soon find out, the hacker had pulled off a maneuver known as SIM swapping, and that's a thing where the targets, you know, the, the person who's being targeted, your phone number is transferred over to a SIM card that the hacker controls. And once they have your number and your SIM card, they can access almost anything. And this hacker did. He got into my text messages, my DMs, uh, my emails, everything. Leftists and trans activists were giddy. They were cheering on the attack. They begged for my private messages to be released. They said that I deserved to be the victim of this federal crime. At least one journalist openly solicited my stolen information, put out his email address and asked, uh, asked for my stolen DMs and my stolen information to be sent to him, to be emailed to him. The hacker then did an interview uh, with this same journalist who works for the publication Wired. The hacker apparently showed the journalist my tax documents, showed him some of my pictures, uh, some of my old emails. The article directly quotes one of my private emails, though it contained nothing salacious or even mildly interesting. In fact, uh, it was a, a, a friendly exchange I had with Steven Crowder 10 years ago, and this made it into the Wired article for some reason. The only interesting revelation in the article is that the hacker says that he had help in pulling off this hack from an unspecified, quote unquote, insider. And we have independently, as we've been tracking this down, we've independently found other evidence, which also points in that direction that there was help from an insider. However exactly he did it and whoever helped him, and we will find all this out, I promise you, it resulted in something much worse than the mere headache of somebody posting dumb tweets from my account this was a total violation of our privacy, and if I'm being completely honest with you, it was one of the worst things that my family has ever experienced. Um, I didn't sleep that night. I was up with our security team, our tech guys, lawyers, trying to put, off, put out a dozen fires all at once. Through the following day, we had people on the phone with Microsoft, Apple, Google, Twitter, uh, my cell phone carrier, the FBI, local law enforcement, etc., it was a nightmare, even with all these resources available to me. The fact that I can, that we, that we can just get on the phone with all these different companies and try to solve this problem, even with that, it's a nightmare. 
I, I can't imagine what this kind of attack is like for people who aren't so fortunate. You know, if you're stuck in a situation where all you can do is call 1-800 numbers, then um, that's going to make it all the worse. On Wednesday, with no sleep, I flew to the University of Iowa to deliver a speech in front of what turned out to be a massive, sold-out crowd. A lot of energy in the room, which gave me enough of a boost to get through the event without passing out on stage or, you know, descending into incoherent Joe Biden mumbles. Outside, there were throngs of protesters taking to the streets. They were stopping traffic. They were blocking the exits out of the event. They also dumped thousands of marbles in the hallway outside of the auditorium where the event was taking place in hopes of, you know, making people slip and fall and causing serious injury to hundreds of people as they're walking out. Fortunately, that plan failed. So to summarize, it was a difficult week, but also fully in keeping with my experience over the past year or more, especially since my film, What is a Woman, came out. We have been doxxed, threatened, stalked, harassed almost constantly. The threats became severe and frequent enough uh, shortly after the film came out to necessitate 24-hour armed security in our home. Last night, there was a Reddit post which uh, went viral from somebody calling me a homophobic Nazi and saying that I should be murdered. The poster said that he's, uh, quote, tired of me getting away with this. And when he says getting away with it, what what he's talking about is that I'm getting away with expressing my beliefs openly. He's tired of that. And he said that there needs to be consequences, quote unquote. The consequences, he specifies, should involve me being bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat. And the thing is that this is not the sentiment of just one random weirdo on Reddit. In fact, somebody posted something similar to Twitter a few weeks ago saying that I should be tortured and killed, and it got tens of thousands of likes and thousands of supportive comments. There is a wide consensus on the left that I deserve to be killed, and they have made that point abundantly clear. But the good news is that we're not taking any of this lying down. I'm going to be working with law enforcement. I am working with law enforcement right now to ensure that the person who hacked into my phone and anybody who granted him access is punished to the full extent of the law. Uh, We are going to sue everybody involved. I can't say much more about it right now, except that many different wheels are currently in motion. And if the people who did this aren't nervous right now, they should be. On the YouTube front, um, As long as they make affirmation of gender ideology a prerequisite for posting my show on the platform, I will not post my show on the platform. But I also will not allow myself to be banished into obscurity off to some internet ghetto where nobody will find my content. You see, big tech, this is the choice they want us to make. They want want me either to surrender my principles or become irrelevant. And they'll be happy with whichever of those two options I choose. Either one, fine with them. Which is why I choose neither. Instead, starting today, we're going to make this show available to everyone for free on The Daily Wire. It'll also be available on Rumble, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the other places you normally get your podcasts. And we're trying something new as well. Starting today, every episode of the show will also be posted in full on Twitter, which is now the most powerful free speech platform in the world. And it seems like the place where this show uh, belongs. If you if you follow our channel on YouTube, you can still find plenty of content that we'll make specially for you. We'll still post clips from the show so we can reach new audiences with our message. But we're not going to give YouTube our full show so long as the situation remains as it is. The point is that we're not going to capitulate, but we also aren't going to scale down and become obsolete. Instead, we're going to be bigger. We're going to be uh, more innovative. 
We're going to reach more people in more ways on more platforms. That's our response. And this is just the beginning. I'll have more to announce soon. Also, we've been talking with Congress. Uh, YouTube shouldn't be allowed legally to hold its users to standards of conduct that it refuses to properly explain. It's not just, this is what people need to understand. It's not just that they target conservative voices, which they do, and that's bad enough on its own, but that they do it in this incredibly underhanded way with intentionally ambiguous rules that are enforced unevenly according to their opaque policies that they often seem to be making up as they go along. The only way this changes is if the people running YouTube experience a sudden and mysterious bout of integrity, or if the law forces it to change. And I'm not betting on the former, so instead I'll fight for the latter, and I will take the fight all the way to Capitol Hill. Now, there is a point at the end of this whole saga. The point is that, uh, one of the most important points anyway, is that the term culture war is no mere metaphor. It's certainly not anymore. We are up against people who have no interest in debates, no interest in discussion. If you oppose them, they will not engage with your arguments. They will simply try to silence you and ruin you. There will be no rebuttals, except for the ones that they issue in the form of censorship, death threats, and worse. The more that they perceive that you are a threat, the more that they will work to destroy you and everyone associated with you. That's the way it works. But this should not dissuade us. Okay, We shouldn't be discouraged by the viciousness of our opponents, but motivated by it. It couldn't possibly be more clear who is on the wrong side and who is on the right side. This is about as black and white as a cultural divide can possibly get. There is one side that hates the truth, rejects the truth in principle, and wishes total destruction on everyone who speaks it. All you have to do is choose the side that is not that side. Now, it may require courage to take that kind of stand, but at least you'll know where to stand. There's not any confusion about this. As for my um, ongoing ordeal, or ordeals, I, I should say, um, I didn't tell you all of it so that you would feel sorry for me. Okay, pity is the last thing that I want. I chose this line of work. I chose to be in this fight. I went into it with my eyes open. Okay, I knew what I was getting into. I may get hit with a curveball on occasion. I may be introduced to new concepts like uh, sim swapping, for example. But mostly, I'm getting exactly what I expected from the vicious, bloodthirsty rage mob and its leaders in big tech. And it has not dissuaded me even slightly. I still will not back down by an inch or compromise at all. I've told you many times that I would rather be dead than surrender to these people, and I meant it. So to all the people who are sending me death threats and posting my home address and hacking my accounts and trying to blackmail me and threaten me, giving away my personal information, mass reporting me to get me deplatformed, and all the rest of it. I want you to know that nothing you have done or will do or could do will ever make me shut up. It will never happen. None of your schemes have worked or can ever work. It is all futile. Your efforts are hopeless. The truth is the truth. And I will never pretend otherwise. 
I, I am not here to make a martyr of myself. I don't want any of the good guys to be martyrs. I want us to win. And we will. Now let's get to our five headlines. I'm sure you can go to Brazil or Colombia and uh, get crazy things done to your face. But why on earth would you do that? If you're tired of dealing with puffy eye bags, dry skin, and wrinkles, then it's time to start taking your skincare routine seriously and check out my friends at GenuCell Skincare. Just in time for their Mother's Day special, GenuCell is offering 70% off their most popular package. Our studio's tech manager, Patrick, is known around the office for having a glorious head of hair. He really prides himself in his long and flowing locks, but because he's been so focused on maintaining his hair, he completely forgot to take care of his skin. His skin became a splotchy, oily, horrendous nightmare, and it sickened me to the deepest parts of my soul. So, like I always do, I forced him to try GenuCell's wide range of projects, and now Patrick's skin is as beautiful as his hair. One of the products they used was GenuCell's Ultra Retinol, which uh, helps exfoliate the skin and can reduce the appearance of pores and improve skin texture. It can also help to even out skin tone by reducing the appearance of age spots and hyperpigmentation. If you don't want your mother to look the way Patrick used to, uh, get the gift of flawless skin this Mother's Day. Visit GenuCell.com to save over 70% off their most popular package. This package includes the dark, dark spot corrector as well as their ultra retinol and under eye treatment. You'll get a complimentary spa essentials box with every order from now until Mother's Day, plus a free upgrade to priority shipping. So go to GenuCell.com Walsh. That's GenuCell.com Walsh. I want to start uh, with this, this, this breaking news that I just saw as we uh, started to film today. And so I don't have any other details except for the uh, statement, which I'm finding on Mediate. Uh, put out by Fox News, and it says, Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways. We thank him for his service to the network as a host, and prior to that, as a contributor. Mr. Carlson's last program was Friday, April 21st. Fox News Tonight will air live at 8 p.m. Eastern, starting this evening as an interim show helmed by rotating Fox News personalities until a new host is named. So that's all we know right now. That's all I know, anyway, that uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox News have agreed to part ways. Um, all I can say is that this is a, this is a disaster for Fox News. I don't know what precipitated this. I don't know what led to it. I don't know who, who, uh, initiated this, this split, but I will say that whatever led to it, it's a disaster for Fox News because Tucker Carlson, by far and away, the most important, the most relevant, the most interesting figure, uh, at Fox News and there's not even a close second in that regard. Um, and also, and also the, the most interesting, relevant, and important figure in all of cable news. Okay, with, with, with Tucker Carlson, you have someone who uh, the people are talking about. He, this is, to be able to deliver a, a monologue, you know, a, a cable news monologue, and have it make the news. Okay, you're delivering monologues that themselves become news, which is what Tucker Carlson does three times a week. You know, that is um, a rare talent that nobody else in cable news has. And certainly nobody at, nobody at Fox News has. Okay. Uh, it, when's the last time a Sean Hannity monologue made the news? When's the last time anyone ever, when's the last time anyone ever said to you, oh my gosh, you hear that Sean Hannity monologue? You got to listen to that. That was incredible. That was really interesting. I and mean, it's, it's never happened in the history of Sean Hannity's uh, career with all due respect to him. Uh, but with Tucker Carlson, this was a this was a normal occurrence. So 
disaster for Fox News. I'll be very interested to see where uh, Tucker goes next. Um, all right. Moving on to this. This is not nearly as big a news. I was going to start with this, and it, it seems to pale somewhat in comparison. But I did want to mention uh, that it wasn't all bad news for me last week. In fact, I talked about that uh, the, the speech at uh, the University of Iowa. And uh, after that speech, a local publication uh, in Iowa called Little Village appears to be some website that does a lot of Iowa-related news. Anyway, they put out this headline, Iowa City receives the nation's leading anti-trans personality with trans-affirming chalk, chants, music, and disruption. The nation's leading anti-trans personality. Uh, Now, the fact that there was trans-affirming chalk, I didn't notice. In fact, there was not only chalk, they also had a marching band. I forgot to mention that. So this was the first protest where they had their own marching band, and they had chalk, and they had everything. Uh, And there was the marbles as well. But nation's leading anti-trans personality. That's the part that jumps out at me. I don't mean to brag, but I am... I am really just racking up the accolades because first I won transphobe of the year, 2022. Then I'm crowned a nation's leading anti-trans personality. And then I was made made aware last week that there's some sort of poll on Twitter where they're uh, trying to determine who the worst pundit of the year is. And it was between me and Tucker Carlson. Somehow I'm winning. So I'm about to have worst pundit, nation's leading anti-trans personality, transphobe of the year. This is like the conservative commentator equivalent of winning the, uh, what is it, the EGOT, you know, the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. This is, this is that equivalent, but for right-wing people, you know, people in right-wing media. Uh, but there is even better news. This is from the Daily Wire. A Bud Light executive facing blowback over a partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney is taking a leave of absence. Alyssa Heinerscheid, who we've uh, talked about on the show, vice president of marketing, marketing at Bud Light, will be replaced by Budweiser Global Marketing VP Todd Allen. So this is a quote-unquote leave of absence, but she's being replaced. So certainly seems to me to be a leave of absence that is uh, strikingly similar to being fired. Um, The move reportedly is part of a shakeup in which senior marketers are more closely connected to every aspect of our brand's activities. That's a quote from uh, a Bud Light spokesperson. That was on Friday. And then this is just in today. Uh, We also have this from Breitbart. Daniel Blake, who oversees marketing for Anheuser-Busch's mainstream brands, has also taken a leave of absence following the backlash from the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light advertising campaign. Uh, As Breitbart News reported, Bud Light Vice President of Marketing Alyssa Heinerscheid had already taken a leave of absence for her role in pushing the ad featuring transgender Dylan Mulvaney. Now it appears her boss, Daniel Blake, has joined her. A spokeswoman says, given the circumstances, Alyssa has decided to take a leave of absence, which we support. Daniel has also decided to take a leave of absence. Oh, we support. We support her taking this leave of absence that we told her she has to take, I assume. Um, so we know, we know based on last week um, that you know, as we started to get the sales figures for Bud Light, uh, there was a precipitous decline ever since the boycott started. And now they're cleaning out their marketing department. I mean, they have fired their top two executives uh, in marketing at Bud Light. This is, uh, if you needed more evidence, like if you still weren't convinced that the Bud Light boycott was working, is working, has worked, then here it is. Uh, I mean, what more evidence do you need? 
Yeah, we, we still don't have all of the sales information. There's still, you know, we're still a ways away from getting sort of the full picture of how the, the boycott has affected Bud Light. But I, I can tell you this, okay, Bud Light has a lot of information about their own sales. And if they were looking at the data and they saw that, yeah, this was just something happening on Twitter and nobody cares and it's not having any real significant effect on their sales, they're not going to start firing people over it. Okay, they wouldn't have issued a statement. Uh, they wouldn't have start, started releasing new commercials that are meant to, um, you know, repair their reputation. They wouldn't be firing people. They're doing all this because they're panicked and they're desperate. So this is a conservative boycott of a corporation that has gone woke, where we are punishing them for it. And it's actually working. We, we are really making a dent. It is possible. This only, this only goes to show that as, as conservatives for so long have liked to brag about the fact that we're the silent majority. And I'm not so sure that majority is, is, is actually true, but there are a lot of us. Whether we're the majority or not, you know, however you determine it, but there are a lot of us. And, um, but having those kinds of numbers, that doesn't mean anything it will not have no effect if we are silent. Okay, so it's it's on us. If we decide you know, there, there's power in numbers, yeah, we don't we don't have control over the institutions. We know all of the disadvantages, but even so, we have numbers and there's power in numbers. But we have to harness it and use it in a in targeted intelligent, strategic ways. And that's exactly what is happening here with Bud Light. And it's not over, by the way. I'm not suggesting that because they've done all this that we should uh, take our foot off the gas. Not at all. Um, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, firing the people responsible, that's a necessary step. But the statement they put out, and they, haven't, they only put out one statement, and it was not an apology. And there needs to be an apology. When that happens, firing putting out a statement, that is a total surrender by the corporation. That is absolute capitulation. And that's a victory. That, that, that means that we won. That's it. We won. I think we're well on our way to that result, but we haven't gotten there yet, which means that we have to keep pushing. AOC appeared on Jen Psaki's new MSNBC show, which is uh, really, I say it's a, a new MSNBC show, but really it's sort of an update on the unofficial MSNBC show that she was hosting back when she was doing the White House press uh, brief, briefings. AOC appeared and... Um, well, just so happens that she casually called for the government to censor Tucker Carlson. And this was before, right before Tucker Carlson was gone from Fox News. But let's listen to that. Regulation in terms of what's allowed on air and what isn't. And when you look at what Tucker Carlson and some of these other folks on Fox do, it is very, very clearly incitement of violence. Very clearly incitement of violence. And... That is the line that I think we have to uh, be willing to contend with. Um, so this is it. This is the Trojan horse, the vehicle that they will use and are using to initiate a final crackdown on free speech. This is the excuse that they will use and are using when the government comes in and starts openly punishing speech. Incitement to violence, they say. But um, the first step before we get to that, and when it comes to the left, the first step always 
is to make the concepts seem ambiguous or hard to decipher. Before the left batters you over the head with something, they will first remove all objective meaning from that concept. And that's what they've done with this uh, idea of incitement to violence. Because in reality, incitement to violence, you know, speech that incites, I mean, that's a real thing. People can do that. That kind of speech exists. But it's, it's pretty simple to understand what it is. If you are actively encouraging people to commit violence against somebody, then you are inciting violence. The Supreme Court has, has ruled on this, and they found that you know, speech that incites violence is not protected speech, but there's a, there, there's a way to determine whether speech qualifies. In fact, they have a test for determining what incitement is. It's called the Brandenburg Test. And um, according to the Supreme Court, incitement must involve two things. Number one, the speech has to be directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action. And two, the speech has to be likely to incite or produce such action. Okay, so it has to be directly encouraging lawless action, criminal activity, imminent criminal activity. And also it has to be likely that somebody would respond to the speech that way. So if I were to say, uh, just as an example, if I were to say that um, the city of San Francisco is a hellhole and it's a cesspit, it's one of the worst places in the country, it's terrible, I hate it. Um, well, you can't claim that I'm trying to incite a terrorist attack against the city by saying that. I'm not directing anyone to do anything. I'm just giving my opinion about the city. It's a negative opinion. It might be an opinion that if you live there, it hurts your feelings, but I'm not inciting any kind of violence. And just, just taking this Brandenburg test, if I were to even say, and I'm not saying this to be clear, but if I were to say San Francisco is a, a cesspit and it's a hellhole and somebody should set off a nuclear bomb in the city and reduce it to rubble, that also likely wouldn't qualify as incitement under this standard because even though I'm encouraging lawless action in that case, it's extremely unlikely that anyone would actually do the thing that I'm advocating for. So that's how kind of strict this standard is. So going over to real world examples, um, everything that they call incitement falls into this first category. It doesn't even pass the first test. If there's one, two tests, it doesn't even get past number one. Um, I'm not calling for a terrorist attack by simply saying I don't like San Francisco. And conservative commentators uh, when, they are, when they're criticizing leftist ideas and leftist people and they're disagreeing with trans ideology and they're uh, criticizing uh, LGBT activism and activists and they're uh, you know, criticizing drag queens who sexualize children and they're criticizing doctors who mutilate kids. By criticizing these people and these ideas, we are not directing anyone to engage in any violence at all. We're simply criticizing them. We're giving our perspective about these people and what they're doing. Even if we were making unfair or untrue criticisms, um, it still wouldn't be incitement. But in this case, the criticisms are fair and true, which is important also. So what is actual incitement then? Well, let's go back to the opening monologue. How about the people who actively call for me to be murdered? That is incitement. I, I know something about incitement. I see it a lot. When you've got someone saying, hey, here's this guy, Matt Walsh. 
go kill him. That's incitement to violence. And also, it's clearly foreseeable that somebody might actually act on it. So if I'm ever like shot in the head while walking down the street, you will be able to draw a clear and direct line between that action and all the people who have called directly for that action to be taken. That's actual incitement. But of course, it's the kind of incitement that, um, that uh, AOC is not at all worried about. Um, all right. Also, I wanted to mention this. Uh, Trump issued a statement about Ron DeSantis. I think this was on Friday. And I mean, he's issuing statements about Ron DeSantis all the time. But this one in particular was um, somewhat egregious. So this is what he said. While Ron DeSantis engages in a weeks-long shadow campaign for president, boasting his uh, playbook, Florida continues to tumble into complete and total delinquency, delinquency and destruction. On DeSantis's watch, Florida has become one of the least affordable states to live in the country. In his first term as Florida governor, Ron DeSantis raised taxes on Floridians by more than $1.5 billion. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition estimates that a Floridian making $10 an hour must work 86 hours per week just to afford rent on a modest single-bedroom home in Florida. Uh, the cost of living in South Florida shot up 10% in just the last year alone, the highest increase by years, uh, by far in years, while the nation, national average was only 6.5%. Then he goes on, he says, uh, prices are going up, blah, 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 education is bad, um, and Florida has become one of the worst states, so on and so forth. Now, there's a problem with this, aside from the fact that it's all lies and nonsense. Uh, one of the biggest problems is that, is that Trump is using far-left, Soros-funded propaganda to hit DeSantis. So Daily Wire has this report. Quote, former, pre former President Donald Trump faced backlash from conservatives late last week after using far-left organizations and media to attack Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the state of Florida. Trump used data from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition and the Florida Policy Institute to attack DeSantis for allegedly leading the state to tumble into complete and total delinquency and destruction. Um, Fox News reported that the NLIHC is an organization dedicated to achieving racially and socially, socially equitable public policy, while the Florida Policy Institute is a left-wing organization that claims to be nonpartisan. Another report said that NLIHC was a pro-transgender nonprofit that's part of a coalition of progressive organizations backed by Soros. Okay, so there, there are a couple of problems here. And the first is that we should remember that Donald Trump was a resident of New York until recently, and he moved to Florida. Okay, so he moved to Florida when, when Ron DeSantis was in charge of Florida. So that, that's, if it's so terrible and his leadership is so awful, why did you move there and why are you staying there? It, Donald Trump could get a house anywhere he wants to. He chooses to be in Florida. There's a reason for that. And that's because, uh, in fact, Florida is one of the states in our union that is thriving economically in terms of uh, its respect for civil liberties and culturally fighting back against uh, the, the, you know, the woke crazies and all the rest of it. Florida is just, and people can see that. Okay, so I understand it's a, it's a primary and you know, you're going to criticize your opponent, even though Sanders has not officially jumped into the race, but you're going to criticize him. 
That's fine. You want to draw contrast between yourself and the other guy because you want to win. You don't want him to win. So I, I get all that. But the issue with Trump is that, you, number one, you, you can't insult people's intelligence. It's one thing to insult DeSantis. He's your opponent. Fine. But you're insulting everybody else. You're insulting your own supporters. You're insulting their intelligence when you expect them to believe this. It's like when, when Trump goes on and on about how uh, about Ron DeSantis was the one who wanted to lock down the state. And he was really the one pushing lockdowns when it was Trump himself who handed the country over to Fauci. Trump didn't just hand the country to Fauci. He put Fauci on TV every single day for months. Okay, he, 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 Trump started the primetime uh, Tony Fauci hour. So a, a lot of uh, Anthony Fauci being crowned as a martyr, a hero, a saint, and all the rest of it, we have Trump to thank for that. Not only did he not fire him, Maybe you could make excuses for the fact that he didn't fire him. It would have been, I don't buy those excuses, but you could try to make excuses. You didn't have to put him on TV every day. You didn't have to make him into a TV star. You, you didn't have to do that. But he did. And he tries to pass it over to Ron DeSantis. It's, it's insulting to our intelligence. We all lived through it. Okay, Anyone who's going to be a, a voting age in 2024 lived through it and remembers it. And we're also aware that Florida is thriving. It, it, it is. We know that. But the other point, too, is that, uh, and I feel very strongly about this, as someone who is often the target of left-wing hit pieces, you never use left-wing hit pieces against your own side, ever. Things might get tough in a, in a, uh, in a primary. Totally get that. But you never use left-wing hit pieces. You don't use left-wing propaganda against your own side, against your own people. You never do that. Okay? That means that you don't, you don't take out-of-context Media Matters clips and use those to hit somebody on your own side. You don't take propaganda from some pro-trans, pro-BLM uh, social equity organization. You just don't do that, okay? Because, because what you're doing in, in an effort to take down somebody you don't like, and the only reason you don't like, is like the only reason Trump doesn't like DeSantis is because DeSantis is potentially going to run for president. He feels personally betrayed by that. So it's all personal. It's all it is. It's got nothing to do with principle. It's got nothing to do with conservatism. It's got nothing to do with who's, who's a better leader, who's, you know, governance, nothing, nothing to do with any of that. This is certainly not a policy. These aren't policy differences. You notice Trump rarely brings up any policy differences with Ron DeSantis. It's always personal all the time. Um, so in an effort to, to land a blow on this guy that you personally don't like, you are legitimizing these far-left propaganda organizations. And that, to me, is just unforgivable. You never do that. All right. Legendary NBA coach Phil Jackson did an interview a few days ago where he said that he no longer watches the NBA because it's too political. And this is, if you don't follow the NBA, and I mean, I, I stopped following the NBA at, at exactly the same time that it seems Phil Jackson stopped following it. But if you've never followed it, then uh, what you should know is that this is, you know, Phil Jackson is, uh, this is the guy that coached my, uh, Michael Jordan. He coached uh, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, this is a legendary, one of the greatest NBA coaches of all time. 
And he's saying that he doesn't watch the sport anymore because of the way that it's been politicized. Listen to this. Do you uh, still watch a lot of basketball or? No, I don't. Tell me about that. When and did you stop immediately from the time you stopped coaching? No, I didn't. I watched some of the game evolve and decided, and they went into the lockout year and they did something that was kind of wanky. They did a bubble down in Orlando mm-hmm. and all the teams that could qualify mm-hmm. went down there and mm-hmm. stayed down there. Mm-hmm. No audience. And they had things on their back like, you know, justice. And uh, yeah, I made a little funny thing like, uh, you know, justice just went to the basket and uh, equal opportunity just knocked him down. And uh, somebody, uh, I have another name for a guy who has jersey in the back of a jersey, he had some other slogan. So my grandkids thought that was pretty funny to, to, to play up those names. So I, I, I couldn't watch that. And then Lakers won, actually. They, they won that year. And, uh, do you feel it, like it just made little of the game, like it made it like a sideshow? What do you think it was that turned you off? Well, it was, it was uh, they even had slogans on the floor, on the baseline. It was catering. It was trying to cater to an audience or trying to bring a certain audience into play. And it, they didn't know it was turning other people off, you know? Mm-hmm. People, people want to see sports as non-political. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had, we've had a lot of different... Okay, we cut it there. So uh, that's Phil Jackson saying, and it's the same reason, as I said, the same reason I stopped watching the, the NBA. It, it, was, uh, it was just far too much. Um, also, when they, yeah, they did the, the bubble year when they were all locked down, there was no audience and no fans. It's just too weird to even try to watch that. Uh, but on top of it, the over-the-top, relentless politicizing that goes on. Um, so that was Phil Jackson's problem. Now, as you might expect, people on the left not happy about this. Um, people associated with the NBA not happy with what Phil Jackson said. So here's Jalen Rose, who's a former NBA player turned NBA commentator. And uh, he was upset about this. Here's what he said. You can't make this up. Hall of Fame coach and 11-time champion Phil Jackson claims to have stopped supporting the NBA because it became too political when it went into the bubble and was catering to certain audiences by putting slogans on the back of jerseys and Black Lives Matter on the floor. The same Phil Jackson that won championships with some of the greatest black athletes in the history of the game, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, made millions on their backs and off their sweat equity. You're sitting up watching the game with your grandkids and y'all think it's funny when justice passes the ball to equal opportunity? When somebody shows you who they are, believe them. So stop watching forever. There, I mean, there wasn't even a criticism there. This is, this is I was waiting for, all he did was restate. All, all he did was restate in an outraged way what Phil Jackson said. You think it's funny? You think it's funny when, when justice passes the ball to equal opportunity? Yeah, that is funny. That's, that's very funny. This is, the, uh, this is one of the great disadvantages 
that the left is dealing with right now in the culture war and something that we have hardly even begun to exploit. But it's a major one. Yeah, yeah, they own the institutions, they own everything, but um, they are totally humorless now. They are humorless scolds to the point where they'll, they'll pretend they don't see why it's funny or at the very least it'd make your eyes roll, you know, um, to have NBA players run around the court with <laughs> slogans like equal, equal opportunity and justice. Uh, if you can't see what makes that corny and, 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 you know, laughable, that's the disadvantage that they're at. They're, they, are, they are required. Because obviously, Jalen Rose knows that that's, at a minimum, incredibly corny. He knows that. But he's not allowed to know that. Right? He has to, he has to pretend. So even if they aren't really humorless scolds deep inside their minds, they have to pretend that they are. They're not allowed. Their ideology um, compels them to have no sense of humor. They have to sacrifice their sense of humor on the altar of wokeism. And that gives us an incredible opportunity, which we should be taking greater advantage of. Let's get to the comment section. If you don't know where your meat comes from, then you should change the way you buy meat today. You deserve meat that can you can confidently serve to your family without fear of what's in it. You also deserve delicious meat with unmatched quality. That's why I personally subscribe to Good Ranchers. Not only is their meat fantastic, but they're also giving you free bacon for a year. That's a $240 value. You can't beat that. That's a pound and a half of bacon in every box that you're getting for free. Good Ranchers offers a, a price lock guarantee, which is just another way to beat inflation. Their products are unlike any other. They're all natural burgers, USDA prime steaks, and better than organic chicken have changed my standard for great meat, and it will change yours as well. You can use Code Walsh for an extra $20 off your order, and you should do that right now today. How can 100% American meat get any better? Good Ranchers has donated over 1 million meals to local food banks, and they're just getting started. So head to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code Walsh for $20 off your box, free bacon, great meat, a secure price, and a bonus $20 off today. You just, like I said, you can't beat it. That's promo code Walsh at GoodRanchers.com. GoodRanchers.com. American meat delivered. All right. It's been a little while since we've done a full show. So I had to go to our most recent video for comments, for the comment section. And this is the uh, the video, uh, the, the segment that we did about the um, creepy weirdo Blippy and the, uh, the, the children's YouTube entertainer who is um, actually incredibly terrifying. We have some comments from that. Chain says, I gained 500% more respect for Matt when he said he doesn't let his kids watch YouTube. Most parents don't have the guts to do that. You know, that really shouldn't require guts at all, just to say no to your kids. It does not require courage. I understand why parents don't want to say no. I get that. Saying no, it's like the path of least resistance as a parent, at least in the short term, is to say yes to everything. Don't say no, um, because then you're not going to have your kid arguing with you. They're not going to whine about it. Um, and if you're saying yes to something like, yeah, go watch whatever you want, go watch YouTube, well, then they're going to be out of your hair and they're going to be watching that all day. And like I said, in the short term, that's the path of least resistance. That's going to make that makes your life easier in the short term. Now, in the long term, um, 
you've just made it more difficult for your child to become, you know, a well-adjusted, successful, uh, intelligent, interesting adult. And that's going to cause a lot of heartache for you down the line and, and more importantly for your child. But in the short term, it is easier. Um, but that's all it is. So it's not, this is not a matter of having courage. It's just a matter of being willing to, you know, put in a little bit of effort, being willing to, you know, pay attention to your, especially, listen, when, especially when children are younger, you know, your kids, kids are, the age of my kids are younger. Um, You can always, it's like, yeah, you, you, you can take pretty much anything away from them. Um, And they'll almost be fine with it if you replace that by engaging with them yourself, by paying attention to your kids. So anytime my kids ask anything, they want to do anything, they want to watch a movie, they want to, whatever it is, whatever they're asking for. Um, If I say, if I just say, no, you can't do that, but, you know, go somewhere and play. Well, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to whine and all the rest of it. If I say, uh, no, you can't do that. Let, let's, uh, how about you and I, how about we spend time together? Let's go do this instead, all of us. They'll always be happier with that compromise. But that means you have to spend, you have to be willing to spend time with your kids and pay attention to them and, and, and uh, everything else. Robert Ortis says, thanks, Matt. Very helpful. I have a three-year-old and I would... Uh, like to know some of the shows you allow your kids to watch. Pretty much at this point, when it comes to kids shows, and there might be there might be some other. I'm sure there are others out there that are good, but uh, the ones that I'm most okay with. So there's Bluey, which I think I was originally told about that by by people in the comments or in the comment section. So I have them to thank for that. Um, Bluey, you know, there's none of the woke garbage. It's uh, you know, I think it's like it's a it's a it's a wholesome show. It's a good show for kids. It's not overly uh, loud and obnoxious. And, you know, it's just a, it's a wholesome fight. It's a, and it's tolerable. I'm not going to say that I enjoy sitting there and watching Bluey, but I can at least be in the same room as it. And uh, that's one of, my, one of my most important tests when it comes to children's entertainment. Yeah, if I see anything that smells of left-wing propaganda, then it's out the window immediately. But if it's so obnoxious that I can't even be in the room when it's on, then I'm not going to let my kids watch it. I'm not going to let their brain be subjected to that kind of stupidity. So Bluey's not that. It's tolerable. Uh, Masha and the Bear on Netflix, which I think is originally, a, I think it's like a Russian show and it's been dubbed. Uh, but there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of dialogue in it anyway. Uh, that's another one. The kids like that one. And then outside of that, you know, most of the TV that my kids watch, it's like we will watch TV as a family. And I'm not going to sit there and watch a kid's show with them. So we'll watch uh, just Saturday morning. This past Saturday, we, we watched, um, we were watching nature documentaries. We're big, we're big nature documentary family. Uh, I think I've said before, we like to watch survival shows. Any kind of show where it's a guy who goes out into the woods and teaches you survival skills. There's a bunch of shows like that. We've watched all of them. So we watch those as a family. Um, and that's what I prefer. You know, it's, you, you like to be able to put the TV on for your kid and leave the room. Uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that in moderation. But I think ideally, um, TV, it shouldn't take over your life. The screen should not take over your life. But it should, as much as possible, it should be a family activity. All right. 
Hippie Hebrew Mama says, Matt Walsh acting like the whole world didn't already know about Blippi's past. I didn't know about it. Well, I didn't know who Blippi was until recently. And then I was, I must say, shocked to find out his past, which I'm not even going to go into detail about what it was because I don't want to relive that again. Um, no, I, I didn't know that. And I, I guess maybe I was being optimistic and I was being generous to the parents who allow their kids to watch it by assuming that they also didn't know this information. Unless you're telling me that, that parents knew what this blippy guy was doing before he became blippy, and they still put that on for their kids? I, I hope that's not the case. Skyla, and there are some blippy defenses here. Uh, Skyla says, Blippy's an Air Force veteran, not creepy at all, but can assume because he's sort of a large character clownish, people can be freaked out by clowns. He connects with kids because he does walkthroughs of really interesting play zones, museums, zoos. Always points out colors, letters, great songs. He made up the character for his nephew and it just took off. The Spoken Wizard says, attacking Blippy? I have to disagree with Matt on this one. The guy visits kids' facilities and educational places like museums and aquariums. I guess the more right you become, the more, the more you turn into a prude. And Cruz says, nah, this is a miss, Matt. My daughter watches this and now she knows colors, counts, and even sings some of the songs he sings, like the dinosaur song, which is super fun singing with her. Kids don't know about a grown man playing in a playground. They just see uh, they see someone playing. Yeah, he did some dirty stuff, but he doesn't anymore. And I don't intend to tell my daughter she wouldn't understand anyway. Oh, so you did know about that, and you let your kid watch it. Okay, listen. And this is, this is the blippy defense that I've heard. Oh, the kids watch, and they learn shapes and colors. And do, do you know how many different ways there are to teach your kids about shapes and colors? That... Any kid's show does that. Um, any kid's book does that. There, there are many different ways. Okay, my kids all learned about their shapes and colors and how to count. My three-year-old knows all that stuff. She's never watched Blippi because there are so many other ways to teach them that that don't come with the downside, which is the, the uh, as, as Cruz says, the, the dirty stuff. So th- there's... You know, there are shows that I can put on for my kids that will teach them these things and that don't have the um, dirty background that Blippi does. Quite dirty indeed, in fact. Um, and also there, there are plenty of ways to teach them where, where you don't have the trade-off of it being creepy and loud and dumb and annoying. Okay, this, I think this comes as news to some parents, but you don't need that. Like there are ways to teach kids information without having bright lights and sounds and all this stupidity screamed in their face. There, there are other ways to do it. There are better ways, actually. And I would explore all of those options before I would ever go to Blippi. I would, I would rather my kids never learn how to count than, had, than learn it from Blippi. If, if, if Blippi was the only person in the world who could teach my kids how to count? Well, then I guess they're never going to learn how to count. They're, they'll have to do without it. When leftists tell you that America is systemically racist, they're lying. All evidence points to the contrary, and every attempt to fix this non-existent problem in the name of equity is making the country worse. Heather McDonald is shutting down the malignant ideology of anti-racism in her brand new book, When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Heather McDonald's When Race Trumps Merit exposes how the BLM-fueled equity obsession is destroying Western civilization. 
McDonald's unafraid to break taboos about academic achievement and crime. She provides the data and the life stories that show the damage being done to this country in real time, all in the name of equity. This book is a must read for anyone who's concerned about the present state of the country and worried for our future. When Race Trump's Merit is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. One of my all-time favorite quotes comes from one of my all-time favorite people, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I, uh, I have the text of Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech hanging on the wall in my office. And as that great man observed, it is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. It's better to try and fail while daring greatly than to never try or to achieve anything at all. So, uh, so that you'll never know either victory or defeat. I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but that's that's the general idea. And it's a speech that uh, came to mind on Thursday with news that Elon Musk's new rocket exploded after successfully lifting off from the launch. Starship is the largest, most powerful rocket ever built. It's a staggering 400 feet long with 16.5 million pounds of thrust. Essentially, it's a skyscraper designed to go into deep space. Eventually, Musk wants to use the rocket to send manned missions to the moon, to Mars, um, out farther into interplanetary space. The vessel will be able to hold 100 people on each mission, along with all the supplies and fuel and everything else that they'll need. But it requires a lot of trial and error to achieve something of this magnitude. Um, No intelligent person expects that SpaceX would be able to build Starship and then send it off to Mars on the first try without any issues. Things certainly didn't work that smoothly in the early days of NASA, or even in the later days of NASA. But we are surrounded with lots of very unintelligent people who are seemingly proud of their stupidity. And so the rocket's malfunction, a malfunction that was very much expected and planned for, was met with um, jeers and mockery from the peanut gallery. There were many snide comments and laughing face emojis. Leftists in particular were, were delighted, declaring that the explosion was some sort of cosmic retribution for Musk's ideological crimes. The media joined in the celebration, laughing scornfully, tossing subtle and not so subtle jabs. Here's Mika Brzezinski on on Morning Joe, turning the uh, snideness level up to 100. Listen. Friday, it's Friday. Yes, and Thursday was a very rough day for Elon Musk. First, his $3 billion rocket exploded. I'm going to question that framing. They get a lot of great data out of that. It exploded. But it was a planned explosion. No. They they got what they wanted. They got a massive data. It was a step forward. It was an unscheduled disassembly, as they call it. Well, I have had many of those. Or it exploded. I've had many of those. Then he he planned make people pay for Twitter verification. His plan to do that? Blew up on the social media site, and on top of that, all of that, 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 that was not good. No, that, that actually Twitter's is. Messed up it's now. kind of a mess. It's a shame. Uh, and on top of all of that, Tesla's value dropped by around fifty billion dollars as its stock price fell by ten percent. We're going to have much more on those and stories straight again, ahead. Not to be a nag here, but like there are a million kind of. different. Uh, market forces that are, are are pushing and pulling. Uh, it's just EVs are a lot more competition. All there, we're saying is it was is a rough day. America. Okay. That was uh, generally the tone from most of the media and many of the uh, snickering idiots on social media. Never mind that, as Joe Scarborough actually correctly pointed out, 
the failure was not really a failure. SpaceX intentionally triggered the rocket's self-destruct system after it veered off course and the boosters failed to separate. The failure was a, was a malfunction, but identifying the malfunctions is the point of the exercise. Again, nobody expected the thing to make it all the way to Mars on the first go. Either way, it was meant to crash land. Uh, they, they originally meant to crash land in the Pacific. The only question was how far it would get before it was destroyed. Ultimately, it made it 20 miles into space, which is pretty damned impressive for a vessel the size of a 40-story building. It also means that they were able to gather important information. It will make the next launch even more successful, which will in turn lead to another launch more successful than that one. You have to walk before you can run. You have to get your rocket twice the size of a Boeing 777 into the stratosphere before you can get it into outer space. This is what science and discovery are supposed to look like. This is how they work. Innovation is a series of failures. As long as you learn from them, the process is working exactly as it should. You can't achieve anything worthwhile without taking risks. And if you take risks, you're guaranteed to fail at least some of the time. Anybody who takes risks and never fails isn't really taking risks at all. This is what separates risk takers from everybody else. The risk taker has the courage to fail. See, many people in our culture, they don't understand this point because we live in a world where so much of the innovation and discovery has already happened. The trials and errors, those those were all suffered before we were born. And this is the story of modern society. We inherited a world of luxury where everything comes easy and quickly, uh, handed to us on a silver platter. And we assumed that it must have always been this way. We don't appreciate the fact that there is a whole history of work and suffering and failure and sweat and tears and blood that is all baked into this cake that we're currently devouring ungratefully. If somebody comes along and tries to push the boundaries, tries to do something new, we laugh because it looks absurd to us. Because we are the most apathetic and ungrateful generation of human beings to ever exist on the planet. But but this isn't just about Elon Musk and the rocket that exploded. In general, I am just tired of the losers who have never done anything, never achieved anything, never even tried to achieve anything, and yet who think that they're in a position to criticize those who are actually in the arena. There are the, uh, the doers of deeds, to use Roosevelt's phrase, and then there are the pathetic, scared little weaklings who sit off to the side offering their useless critiques while contributing nothing of substance to the world. This dynamic has always existed. Roosevelt pointed to it over a century ago. But the difference is that we have so many in that latter category now. We have so few doers of deeds and so many doers of nothing. Ironically, the achievers, you know, the doers in the past, uh, they achieved so much that they made it possible for people in our time to do nothing, to achieve nothing, and and yet live in comfort. The sidelines have never been so crowded or so noisy, full of people who are terrified to step foot onto the field, but will laugh nonetheless at anybody else who stumbles while doing what they would never do and could never do. And a bunch of losers laughing at a guy who literally builds spaceships is just the most absurd and extreme manifestation of this phenomenon. It certainly is not the only one. And that is why the entire do-nothing peanut gallery is today canceled. That'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.